turn your phones to silent, please? <laughs> Justin. Welcome to Why Not Change the World, the RPI podcast, where experts tackle issues from multiple angles. I'm your host, Reeve Hamilton, and on this episode, we're talking about diversity and inclusion. I'm joined by Chendu Jaya Chandiran, Director of Multicultural Programs at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Hello. And Lee Ligon, the Associate Dean for Science and Academic Affairs, also at Rensselaer. Hi there. Thank you both for joining us. And so I've, I've given you titles now, but what do they actually mean? What do, what do you actually do? Maybe Chendu, I'll start with you. Sure. Um, so as the Director for Multicultural Programs, um, I'm responsible for overall strategy on how to advance kind of diversity and inclusion initiatives within the Division of Student Life. Um, and, uh, and the nature of the work means I can't just work within the Division of Student Life. I have to kind of work across um, uh, with my colleagues in student life, in admissions, uh, in facilities, etc. So, um, although I'm technically located within the Division of Student Life, I kind of work with um, all of the stakeholders on campus. Uh, but the focal point is how do we advance the diversity and inclusion initiatives on campus? And I imagine one of those people you work with is sitting right here. Absolutely. That's right. What is your role as the Associate Dean? So as the Associate Dean of the School of Science, I'm actually um, pretty much responsible for most things having to do with the undergraduate academic experience in the School of Science. And everybody here at Rensselaer has to take uh, math and science classes. So actually, in effect, that means I... Um, I'm responsible for uh, some element of the academic experience for all students here. Um, as part of that, I work across campus with my colleagues in student life, in, um, in all different parts of the, the university to, to really focus on the undergraduate experience. We, we like to talk about issues in sort of a global sense or a bigger sense, but you guys are both working here at Rensselaer, so let's sort of place this at Rensselaer a little bit. Um, in November of 2019, our president, Dr. Jackson, issued a campus-wide memo affirming that Rensselaer is a, quote, diverse community with respect to ethnicity, race, culture, religion, geographic origin, sexual orientation, and gender identity that strives to provide everyone with a safe, secure, and inclusive community within which all students can thrive personally and academically. And as part of that statement that she put out, she said, it is important to reaffirm where we stand because while diversity is a fact, inclusion is a choice. And I was wondering if you guys could help me unpack that a little bit. You know, we talk about terms like diversity, inclusion, or equity. How are these things different from each other? How sure. can one be a fact but another a choice? What, is, what, is, what do they mean? Sure. I think, um, and I, that's a great place to start the conversation, because I think part of the problem, and, you know, DEI practitioners, and DEI meaning diversity, equity, and inclusion practitioners, have done a little bit of disservice by you know, stacking those terms one on top of the other without necessarily uh, teasing out the nuances between them. Uh, so now we've kind of arrived at this uh, position where people use those terms together without necessarily understanding what the difference is. So diversity is really a, a, a numbers game, right? It's, it's about the different demographic populations that are represented within a larger uh, community. Um, so when you're talking about race, that means, you know, black, Latinx, Native American, biracial, multiracial, Asian, etc., etc. Um, inclusion is more of a, um, of a feeling, if you will, right? It's how do these people feel about being a part of the larger uh, 
community? Do they feel like they are welcome? Do they feel like uh, they belong? Do they feel like they have a stake in, 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 in what's going on, right? So that's the difference. So diversity is, is about the numbers. Inclusion is about how those people uh, live, work, play together. Equity, on the other hand, is about the avenues for to access the best parts of the community, right? If you are within this community, do you have um, equal access and opportunity to succeed and be the best version of you? Uh, how are the policies, the procedures, the culture allowing you to succeed or not? That's what the equity uh, conversation is about. Uh, and then I'd also introduce that fourth term, right? The fourth term being social justice. Um, uh, and that is about how do we prepare this community to make changes outside the institution that advocate for justice and equality for all, right? So, so there really are these four distinct concepts, diversity, inclusion, equity, and social justice that aren't the same. Um, and so what that means is when we're thinking about um, the institution, we have an obligation to strategize for each one of them, right? You can't just uh, say we have a strategy that's going to achieve all, um, because that, I think, is a little bit reductive. We can do better than that. But uh, despite the fact that I think they're um, separable concepts, yeah. They're very interconnected. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think I think if you think about uh, the lens of academic success, um, it's it, a, a sense of inclusion is essential to achieve equity. Absolutely. And so one of the things that we're really interested in is um, allowing all of our students the equal opportunity to succeed. Mm -hmm. um, and to do that, all of our students have to actually feel like they, they legitimately belong here. Mm -hmm. um, we need to create an inclusive environment, mm -hmm. um, both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. Um, it's not just that, that we need to increase the numbers of people. We don't mm -hmm. need to just play the diversity game. Right. We need to actually make everybody feel like they, they belong here. Mm -hmm. And it's not just... Uh, race. There are other right. factors as well. Um, you you mentioned some of them in in discussing the president's uh, memorandum. Um, one of the uh, the challenges that we see is uh, with students who are of uh, different uh, gender identities. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm actually the co-chair of the RPI LGBTQ plus task force. And so this is something that we're very uh, uh, involved in trying to understand the, the challenges that, uh, that students with non-binary uh, gender identities that uh, transgender students uh, face in their, yeah. in their um, classrooms and, and also in the rest of uh, RPI. But beyond that, students may not feel included uh, depending on their religion, um, issues like uh, neurodiversity, uh, neurodiversity, learning, yeah. um, learning styles, uh, styles um, neurodiversity for those of you who are not familiar oh, sure. with that term. Um, we have a, 
a lot of students, for example, who are on the autistic spe spectrum, um, and they have different needs in the, mm -hmm. both in the classroom and outside of the classroom, um, in order to feel like they belong here. Um, yeah, and and the other thing I, that I just wanted to bring up really quickly yeah. is um, first-generation students and mm -hmm. students from lower socioeconomic status. Um, I think that sometimes in in these conversations is the um, is a hidden issue um, mm -hmm. that that we don't necessarily always face head on. Well, speaking of hidden issues, why can't you just assert you all belong and have everyone feel like they belong? Yeah, that's. I think the easy answer is that's not quite the way that game works, right? <laughs> um, I, I figured that might be the case. Yeah, um, and. And I think the, the beauty of that statement uh, from Dr. Jackson is, is simply this, right? The, the diversity is a fact, is, is saying that that's an inevitability, right? Uh, the, the population demographics are changing. More and more students who traditionally thought college was not a place for them are finding out that, oh yeah, I can actually make this work. So that's inevitable. So it, it's gonna happen, it's happening already. Um, I think we have to acknowledge that the STEM field is changing perhaps a little slower than some of the other disciplines out there, uh, but it's, it's going to happen. Um, and you, you can't just kind of uh, plunk a whole bunch of people in a room together and say inclusion is, is going to happen because the, the human nature is that we coalesce into hom homogenous groups, right? We, uh, we like to be around people who look like us, who walk like us, who talk like us, who eat like us. So what happens is when you create a, a space where there are kind of uh, numerically diverse or numerically, uh, you know, the numerical representation isn't equal, what's going to happen is that some groups are automatically going to be larger than others. Uh, so just by virtue of that numbers game, unless you have an intentional plan to create heterogeneous groups, we're not going to have that. There's going to be these, these smaller communities, these pods that form, um, that are going to be homogenous and inevitably leave some people out. Um, and then, so, so that I think is the, is the more nuanced answer. You can't just assert that this is going to be an inclusive community. You have to take intentional measures to create the kind of community where everybody feels like they have a stake. The other thing I think is that um, sometimes the messages that people get uh, unintentionally are uh, more important than the uh, overt messages. So if, if you, let's take the classroom for, for an example, because that's what I, I care about. Um, if an, um, an instructor comes in and says, you all belong here, but then conducts their classroom in a way that makes some people not feel like they're as important in that classroom, the unintentional message is much more powerful, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so there have been innumerable studies showing that, um, in, especially in math and science classes, uh, girls and women are not called on as much as, as boys and men. And that leads to a sense that the girls and women feel that they don't belong in those classrooms. And that, that those kinds of inadvertent uh, actions 
actually spread across the whole um, spectrum of, of um, identities that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, we have to, uh, at some point, believe that, you know, all of the educators who, who work at an institution are fundamentally good people, right? They, they want to do right by all of their students. So the question is then, why is it that some of these disparities remain? And that's where this idea of bias comes in, right? It, it's not that we are intentionally going out there to say we're only going to favor the men or the, uh, you know, gender binaries or, or people who are white. It's that there is a system of messages that circulate around us that that kind of implicitly tell us these are the people who are likely going to have the answers. These are the people who are likely going to succeed. And that message influences the behaviors that, the, that, that happen in a classroom, right? So it's not to say that um, there are people who are ill-willed. Uh, but it's recognizing that we, the that we live and work in a world that has kind of systemic biases built in uh, that um, that requires some intentional work uh, to overcome. Yeah, that's sort of one thing to say you belong in the world as I structure it and see it, and exactly. another to say I'm going to make some changes to exactly to meet you in your world. And um, you know, instructors are are people too. And yeah. they have um, their own insecurities and their own mm -hmm. discomforts. Um, this is actually something that, that we were talking about earlier. When you're an instructor, um, you have a whole group of students who uh, sometimes have names that are unfamiliar to you. Yeah. And um, I remember when I first started as an instructor, that was very uncomfortable for me. I didn't want to be wrong. I didn't want to mispronounce people's names. And I think I was probably, um, I responded to that situation by basically not using their names because mm -hmm. it was, it was a, um, it was, it was such an uncomfortable situation. And I, I realized very quickly that I was doing that. And so I, I intentionally try to, uh, ask people, how do you pronounce your name? Help me learn how to pronounce your name. And that seems like something very minor, but it, it tells the students that you are, uh, you respect them, you, you're not telling them that their name is, is unusual and different. Yeah. You're, you're basically saying, I need help, can you help me yeah. with that? And uh, I think that's, a, that's something that we can all do to, to help our students feel like they belong there. Uh, so I think that's a very easy humanizing way to say you matter in my classroom uh, and I think that's one of the first things we can do to make our classrooms more inclusive. I think one of the things um, in science and engineering especially, uh, the, the instructors are often, uh, they hear we want you to make your classes more inclusive. Mm -hmm. they, they, they back up and say, oh, you know, I teach science, engineering, math, that's not, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to teach about race. And I think that's a, um, it's a, it's a cop-out. Um, yeah. It's a way to, to basically say this isn't my problem. Um, what, what, what we're talking about here are things that are applicable in any classroom. Mm -hmm. um, they're a way to, to make your students uh, 
feel as if you believe they can succeed. Um, that's something that I feel very strongly about. Um, if, if you start a class, uh, for example, by showing a distribution of grades and say 20% of you are going to fail this class, what message does that tell the students? What message do people get from that? Do they think, I'm going to be part of the 80% that succeeds, or do they think, oh my gosh, I'm going to be, um, I might fail this class? Or do you start a class by saying, I expect all of you to succeed in this class? Maybe not saying overtly that, but, but by indicating that, but based on your, uh, on your actions, by your, your policies, your procedures. Um, I, I think that in, in science and engineering, we tend to, to think that we're not doing our job unless we, um, we torture people or we make people really have to struggle. And I'm not saying that we should lower our standards. I'm not saying this is, that is absolutely not part of the conversation. It's not that we should make our classes less difficult, but it's that we should enable our students to succeed in those classes. We should expect our students to succeed. Of course not all students will succeed. That's, that's the nature of, of um, teaching at an elite institution. Our classes are hard. And um, we, are, we are going to um, have students who will struggle, but we can do a lot more to make our classrooms and our, our teaching style and our uh, e exams, our syllabus, uh, all of the elements of our, of our, of our classes uh, convey the expectation of success. Well, how can we do that? I mean, so what does an, an inclusive classroom look like in a, at a STEM institution in yeah. particular? Yeah, I think, um, you know, to kind of build off of uh, Lee's point, right, like the idea of, of, a, of a curved classroom, uh, in, you know, telling people, you know, 20% of you are going to fail. Um, for starters, you don't start a class saying that because you have to understand, right, like when you have a, a, an inevitably diverse classroom, and you start off by saying 20% of you are going to fail. We have to think about who is going to think I'm part of the 80% and who is going to think I'm part of the 20%, right? When you live in a world, and this is the world we live in, where some students are getting the message, you don't belong in college. Your ticket to success is playing basketball, not succeeding as a scholar there is a much higher chance that those students are the ones who are going to think, oh, I'm part of the 20%, right? Whereas if you come from a family of, uh, you know, with a lineage of, uh, in, in, in science, they're much more likely to think, oh, I'm going to be part of the 80%, right? So that's the subtext that circulates within the classrooms that's going to tell some students I'm going to succeed and others that they're not, right? So. That's one of the things. The, the other thing we have to consider is uh, what are some of our traditional assumptions about teaching and learning, right? Now, the, the higher education system that we've built um, starts with the fundamental assumption that teaching and learning is an individual enterprise, right? You, uh, you learn and you succeed on your own individual merit, right? Uh, does that sound right? Does that sound like yeah. the starting mm -hmm. assumption? Now, here's the problem with that. Now, if 
you are coming from a um, you know a, a white cisgendered male community you are working within a system that works for you right so you are much more likely to succeed on your own merit quote unquote right but if you are coming from a community of marginalized people success has always depended on the community that's surrounding you right like you're you're much more likely to depend on on the people around you to help you succeed so when you kind of start off this uh, this uh, this idea of academic success as an individual enterprise you're automatically privileging certain folks and dis disadvantaging others right and when you do grade on a curve right now your grade depends on someone else failing right that's the epitome of this idea of an individualistic idea it does not encourage communal learning it sets it up as a competition it absolutely right. does right. right so so those are some of the things that i think we have to consider when we uh, say what does an inclusive classroom look like yeah. are we encouraging communal learning which is much more favorable to those marginalized communities or are we encouraging this kind of competitive landscape where you know you win someone else loses yeah. uh, right so that's another way that we can do that um, I think that you know what Chendu is talking about is is um, changing our mindset really, yeah. um, and there are a lot of ways that we can change our mindset to make our our classrooms more inclusive. But there are also some small practical things that um, that anybody can do even without dramatically changing their mindset. Things like. Um, being aware of your grading metrics. Do you have, is, are the grades in your class coming from two or three um, large high stakes uh, things like mm -hmm. uh, exams or papers? Um, that creates a lot of stress and it doesn't give the students a lot of wiggle room. Things like um, giving feedback more often. Yes. Um, allowing students to know um, more regularly how their uh, uh, mastery of the material is, is going. Changing people's behavior starts with changing our own behavior. And so that's the, the very first thing that we can do. Think about the things that we can do as individuals and then help other people to see things that they can do also. I like to share anecdotes um, with my, my faculty colleagues um, because I think sometimes just sharing small stories about um, things that, that I've heard about or things that I know have happened in classrooms um, helps people see that sometimes those things might happen in my classroom and, and I never actually thought about that. And, and, and you know, when when you say you know you, we want people to change their, change their behavior yes there there is truth to that but there are different methodologies to do it right like what what lee is talking about uh, you know using narratives as a way of teaching is certainly one way narratives are one of the most powerful tools uh, in kind of the dei toolkit uh, because narratives often 
you know, is, is one of those places where both the argument and the evidence exist in the same space, right? That's one of the reasons why narratives are so incredibly potent. Uh, and then there are the other ways that we can do that, right? You know, creating cultures where we either implicitly or explicitly sanction certain behaviors and encourage others. You know, certainly that's another method, but creating fundamentally sound policies uh, is another way, right? That's not a more kind of informal culture creation. It is kind of indoctrinating a particular culture. So when we're writing those policies, uh, we have to think, um, are we making a particular class of people, a, a particular identity, an organizing framework for that policy? If we are doing so, are we writing a policy that reduces the disparity between that class of people and others, or are we writing a policy that increases the disparity, right? That's the difference between uh, um, a anti-racist policy or a racist policy or an anti-sexist policy and a sexist policy. Policies are actually really, um, are, are, are absolutely critical. Right. And I think that um, one of the things um, I completely agree with everything you, you just said. Um, one of the things I think is also really important is to go back, well, prospectively and retrospectively, yes. examine our policies for unintended mm -hmm. consequences. Um, I think sometimes there are policies that we enact or that exist that have uh, uh, disproportionate effects mm -hmm. on different groups of people. As a, as a side effect, Absolutely. but that means that they should actually be addressed, that should actually be addressed also. Yes. Um, yes. It doesn't really matter what the intent of the policy is, it matters what the effect of the policy mm -hmm. is. Absolutely. The president likes to say that our students will possess intellectual agility, multicultural sophistication, and will have a global view. How can you have those three things right. without addressing some of these issues? Yeah. Right. And, 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 you know, the, the thing is, those things, intellectual agility, global view, and multicultural sophistication, uh, they are not just kind of values to be aspired to. They are fundamental necessities to be a productive citizen of the world that, uh, that we are moving towards, right? Um, because we have... Uh, we, we have to recognize that, uh, you know, the, the world is changing. That means the, we have to design a world that works for people other than just white cis men who have traditionally been the people with all the money. So we design a world that works for them, right? But that's not the, world, the way the world is going to be. That means our scientists and inventors of today have to know how to design for someone other than them. Uh, and, to, and doing that means you have to be multiculturally sophisticated. You must have a global view. You must be intellectually agile because you need to be able to talk to someone and say, help me understand your world. Help me understand what your needs are so that I can design something that actually works for you. Um, and as an institution, our goal is actually much more, more than that. We don't want our students, our graduates, to just be good citizens of the world. We want them to be leaders in the world. Mm -hmm. And in order to be leaders, they need to um, embrace these, these changes, mm -hmm. not just 
be able to deal with them. Right. They need to actually embrace the world as it is and will be, mm-hmm. not just the world as it was. Yeah. And, and does that mean that even for those white cis men, and I can speak to this perspective, that there's, if all other motivating factors fail, there's a certain amount of self-interest, perhaps, in, in embracing this uh, going forward. And, and this has been the problem with the, the DEI industry for the longest time, right? Like we've, uh, and I've said this before, we've for the longest time just made it a moral issue um, where you know, inclusion and equity needs to be done because it's the right thing to do. And yes, it is still the right thing to do, but it is also the practical thing to do. It's also the economically feasible thing to do, right? Because uh, the, the worst thing that can happen is that we graduate people who uh, aren't able to work across cultures, aren't able to really understand the human experience from another person's perspective, that and they and they can only design from their perspective and what happens when the world changes now they become an obsolete scientist that's the worst thing that can happen right so that's what we have to actively work against because now you know they aren't able to contribute to citizenry they aren't able to um, you know be financially stable um, and uh, you know, we're, we're really failing them in, in every single way possible. Uh, so yes, um, it's, inclusion is no longer just a moral issue. Um, it's, it's the practical issue. Well, I think we could probably keep talking about it. I think there's plenty to dig into, <laughs> yeah. but Chendu, Lee, thank you both for coming. Thank you. Always a pleasure, thank yes. you. Why Not Change the World is recorded in the Soloist Suite at NPAC, the Curtis R. Prem Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Thank you to the NPAC staff for their assistance, and thank you for listening.